We uh, talked recently on the program about uh, one of the less uh, spoken about casualties of the war in Ukraine, the, uh, the environment in particular, the impact of the destruction of that dam. Now, another probably overlooked casualty is the art sector. Yes, in Ukraine, but also in Russia. The impact has been severe and it's been tragically and beautifully brought to light in a piece by Polina Ivanova. Polina is, of course, the Russian and Ukraine correspondent for the Financial Times, and I welcome her to the program. Polina, just before we talk about the arts, what's the latest on the Wagner Group? I'm finding it impossible to follow with the convolutions of that story. I mean, I also find it very difficult. We all do at the moment because it's uh, happening at an extraordinary pace and uh, is 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 absurd in many ways. The latest is that we've just been given a tour by Russian state media of the inside of the villa um, in which Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner militia group, this warlord, um, used to live uh, before he raised a mutiny against uh, against Moscow. Um, we've been given this kind of uh, tour by by the media. Got to see his many disguises, his wigs, his gym, his private chapel and jacuzzi. All of this stuff. Um, it's all. I'm sorry, all his private strange. chapel. Yes, indeed. Um, he had uh, pictures showed, uh, or at least alleged to show, you never know, but um, the photos showed a uh, set of Russian icons inside his chapel as well, uh, inside, his, in, inside his home, so a little Orthodox chapel, but also a lot of um, quite sort of items that reveled in his past cruelty that, that the group is so well known for. For example, um, we have all, unfortunately, as journalists covering the war, had to watch this um, horrific video that uh, Wagner put out where they execute one of their own deserters um, using a sledgehammer. And then uh, it so yeah. turns out that he has a life-size, you know, enormous sort of human-sized sledgehammer as a kind of gift standing in his living room, you know, the, the size of a grandfather clock or something, an enormous uh, monument to his own cruelty inside or a picture, a framed photograph of severed heads, you know, really uh, heart of darkness stuff. So rather than uh, assassinating him or making him disappear, the Kremlin is choosing to mock him, to ridicule him. Yes, I think they're trying to assassinate him as a politician. You know, he raised a political challenge. He was the strongest critic of the way the war has been run. He's, um, his criticism of the corruption in the Russian military has really landed. I mean, people have really heard that. And, um, you know, everyone can see the failure that is Russia's invasion. Um, and, uh, you know, it's quite, uh, it's been one sort of quite humiliating for the Kremlin defeat after another since about April last year. And uh, the only person who's had any success on the battlefront has been, um, has been Yevgeny Prigozhin and his Wagner troops. Um, so his criticism carried a lot of weight, political weight, as a as a counterweight to the Kremlin. Um, so they're trying to assassinate him as a politician. But 
as a person, as a businessman, we're still trying to kind of understand where he still where he stands now. We've seen him his private jets flying around Russia. He's been cited in St. Petersburg and some of his offices. Um, all those reports are pretty murky. But um, now we hear from the Kremlin just today that uh, Prigozhin and his men went to the Kremlin and met with Putin. So who knows what's happening there? The voice of Polina Ivanov. Now, let's take a, a different sort of uh, theatrics. You tell the story of a beleaguered theatre director in a remote corner of Siberia whom you call Oleg. And Oleg got a phone call in March last year with a strange request. That's absolutely right. Um, it's uh, If you can imagine it, it's only a few weeks, you know, that moment, just a few days, in fact, into the war, into the start of the invasion, which was a huge shock for everybody, um, and uh, even in far distant Siberia. And the request that he got was that his actors record a video uh, supporting the president and his invasion. And Oleg sort of, you know, like many people in the art scene, was very, was immediately opposed to the war, you know, comes from a very different culture, thought that um, his actors would say no um, and be horrified by this uh, request, the request to film themselves supporting the invasion, supporting the war. But um, instead, he calls a meeting and finds that the actors say, well, we don't mind at all. In fact, we think that this is great for Russia. We think this is a, this is a good thing. Now, and so okay, everything starts with a shock. Let's walk this back a bit because I'm looking at a, a portrait, a picture of Oleg now. He's, uh, he's, got, he's a guy in his 40s. His hair's pulled back into a, into a bun. And as you report, he'd moved from Moscow four years ago with the ambition of turning his Siberian theatre into one of the country's great cultural institutions, a vision splendid, uh, Polina. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, young guy, you know, leaving uh, central Russia, moving moving very far into a remote corner of, of the country. But it was, you know, this time where... Um, a lot of people were doing that sort of thing. A lot of people were bringing up uh, regional theatre. It was quite a sort of golden age, especially a few years ago. It was there was money in theatre. It was radical. It was Russian theatre was really pushing the boundaries, and and it was exciting kind of place to be. And I have a lot of friends who did this sort of thing, who went out into these far flung regions um, with the idea of. of you know, not just focusing on Moscow, not just focusing on St. Petersburg, but really bringing up the theatre of, of other areas. Now, before we tell Olga's, uh, his sad story, Oleg's sad story, I think it's important to remind the listener the centrality, the profound importance of theatre in Russian culture. You can't uh, overstate it. I mean, um, it's it's something that people follow, like uh, the sports. I don't know. It's something that um, a large swathe of society will um, uh, will follow. Almost, you know, like it's a football team. You know, you people know which directors run which theaters, which actors have gone to which directors in in these different theaters. Um, they follow the Golden Mask, which is a uh, something like the Oscars for theater, which happens. Um, every year. And the uh, way that the Soviet Union, this kind of a Soviet legacy in a way, because there was a lot of 
this idea of creating regional theatres and creating houses of culture in different cities, even very remote ones, and making sure that there were theatre troops that were constantly active in those places, um, including ones which would do sort of uh, very kind of light and popular theatre that people would go to, as well as very high intellectual theatre. Now, back to Oleg. He gets the phone call. His immediate reaction is to say, no, we're not in the business of... uh, you know, doing propaganda for uh, for head office, thank you very much. And he expected support, but as you say, to his shock and distress, he didn't get it. He doesn't get it, yeah. And um, and he's and he's very surprised by this and he doesn't really know it, what to do with it because it completely blows kind of um, his own idea of his theatre out of the water. He thought that he had understood his team. He thought he knew his actors and he really thought that they were on side. I mean, he described these rehearsals that he did at the very, very first days of the war with his um, choreographer where she would end the, you know, everybody's in a state of hysteria. Everybody is, you know, as shocked by the war, just checking their phones all the time, reading the news. And his theatre directors, uh, his, his theatre choreographer is, ending rehearsals with a shout of glory to Ukraine, you know, in, in thinking that everybody was behind behind them. But in fact, that wasn't the case at all. And uh, the actors were quite happy to... Um, Quite happy to record videos to support the to support the war. Mind you, there was a pressure point in that uh, quite a few of them had honor honorary titles, and if they didn't comply with uh, the recording the uh, the pro war videos, they, those titles would be pulled. Exactly, and that's kind of what this piece is trying to. What the whole story was trying to explore. It's this idea that. You know, what, at what point do you do you you know turn away from your values, or do you turn, decide not to pay attention to the horrors that are happening and that your country is perpetrating? At what point does the cost become too high for you? And for these actors, it was uh, quite simple. They have these titles that are granted to them by the state. Those titles confer them status. They give them some authority. They give them you know potentially trips to the Kremlin sometimes. You know. Uh, extra money in their pensions and that's something they did not want to forego for the sake of you know active protest against an invasion which is already killing civilians every day of course this goes back to the soviet era you know hero workers of of this and that were they were handed out like lenin prizes now what that's- what has the what, what's the broad brush view of uh, of what's happened to some of the leading lights in theatre? Well, there's been an unprecedented purge. This is what everybody that I spoke to and met with in Moscow and St. Petersburg over the past year were, were telling me that it's something it's something extraordinary. Everybody who spoke out immediately against the war and really thousands of Russian cultural workers of all levels and of all degrees of fame, um, many of them, especially in Moscow and St. Petersburg, did sign petitions against the war, speak out, and they were blacklisted quite quickly. So they stopped being able to receive jobs. They started um, coming under more and more pressure. Um, some faced court cases and uh, many were forced to flee. So if we look now at the top directors, top theatre directors, the real stars of Russian culture in the preceding years, they are now scattered across New York, Paris and many, luckily for me, in Berlin. It's it's like a, a Moscow version of uh, McCarthyism, isn't it? The same sort of impact on creative people. 
almost identical in its process, in fact, that they are so right. Um, it's this kind of, you know, everybody in that world faced this dilemma of either I self-censor or if I uh, speak out, then I have to go. Then I am, and then I'm going to get kicked out. Then I'm going to go. Um, and the choice of self-censorship is a very difficult, difficult one. So Oleg chooses self-censorship initially. Well, self-censorship is one. Overt censorship is another. And uh, censorship has smothered creative life and Russian free thinking. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, everybody who has, has criticised the war, who's wanted to speak out publicly, has left. But it's not just criticism of the war. It's also a push, uh, a renewed push for the patriotic values, traditional values, a huge conservatism um, that is being sort of ramped up, really guided by the state that has that has meant that um, creative life is is smothered across the board, and not just that writers and directors are not able to perform things related to the war and to Ukraine, but also a whole range of other topics from LGBT issues to everything else. Tell me or remind us about the Z, the Z, that suddenly started appearing right across Russia. It's had a particular role in the theatre. Yes. So this uh, letter was first spotted on the sides of tanks that were rolling into into Ukraine, Russian tanks. And in the very first days of the war, it's clearly some sort of military marker that they were using to distinguish their own vehicles from from the tanks that, that Ukraine might be using. But that Z was quickly picked up by propaganda channels and turned into a sort of pro-war rallying cry and a really bloodthirsty one. You know, it's one which not just supports Russia, but really supports its invasion of Ukraine. It's a kind of a letter on a tank. And um, within about a month of the war, it became this uh, symbol that propagandists would wear on their lapels of their jackets as they performed on state TV and this sort of thing. And suddenly it also started appearing on the fronts, on the facades of theatre buildings. And once one theatre had done it, many others felt that they had to do the same in order to kind of comply with this kind of national trend. And and in a kind of, again, a sort of spiral of hysteria these theatres, one after another, started hanging in enormous, you know, real wall-sized, enormous Zs outside to indicate that they were, you know, patriotic theatres in line with the, with the patriotic mood of the country and and in line with support of the invasion. Now, this is obviously horrific, and and Oleg uh, was terrified every day, terrified that he would come to his theatre and see a big Z hanging on it. He wouldn't have put it there, but the government might have done or his staff might have done. And one day he comes in and finds that some of his workshop staff had actually kind of DIY'd a Z internally and uh, he figures out a clever way to get it taken down. Now, I hadn't realised that teachers were making uh, kids pose for pictures in Z formation. So, uh, you know, so did the director of uh, a Kids Leukaemia Award, all pervasive. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you, you, we, there was just there these pictures everywhere and they, it continues to happen. I mean, um, you still see, you know, nursery school pupils being dressed up in military uniforms and lined to march out in a Z formation to kind of show their support for the war. Only more so now than ever. So let's, uh, let's look at Oleg's uh, crisis because he has a very sick child, a daughter with uh, cystic mm. fibrosis, and he was worried about her access to treatment. How does he deal with this? 
Well, he deals with it initially. Yeah, he's very worried about it, and the access to treatment is is really serious. So he moves them out of the country. Um, he gets his uh, his daughter and her mother to leave the country and moves them to Bulgaria. Uh, very quickly the beginning and starts to support them financially and they were really dependent on him. So he feels this additional pressure that he can't just quit his job in protest against what was happening and in protest against the war because he needs to keep sustaining them, he needs to keep supporting them. And so when an official comes to him and says, Oleg, you've been writing all of these anti-war Facebook posts, you've been criticizing the war on, on Facebook, you've been using language that the state does not support, you have to take that down after, otherwise we're going to come for you. He sits and thinks about this in the context of his, what is happening to his family and decides that he would delete everything that he has written about the war, everything critical, and ag agree to the self-censorship in order to be able to keep his job. And what's happened to him at the time of our discussion? What's happened to him now? Yeah. Bulgaria, um, yeah, he was uh, forced to leave. So um, one of these crises after another escalates and escalates um, to the point where um, he effectively uh, is, is, is forced out. He's pushed out of, of his job and, um, and he's happy about it and basically, and basically has to leave. Um, he stays, he leaves the country. I mean, mobilization also starts, which raises the bar of the risk even more because it's not just a risk. So mobilization for the armed forces in Russia, where people were kind of almost snatched from their beds to, to join the army. That's a risk not just for him, but he also felt a risk that, that he could be asked to uh, recruit men from his own staff for the armed forces, he'd be sending people directly to their deaths and he was not willing to do that. Polina, since your piece came out, there's uh, there's been another development and a very sorry one. Tell me about the two women arrested. Yes, absolutely. So actually in my piece right at the beginning, um, I mention uh, Yuri Shekhvatov, who's a young playwright who was uh, detained um, for protesting the war and spent 15 days in jail in March. Um, for protesting the war. Now, since uh, in, in recent months, the new development is that actually his wife, who's a playwright as well, um, has been arrested along with the director of a play that she worked on. So Svetlana and um, Jeanne um, Berekova, were, uh, she was arrested for a play that was accused of extremism. Um, now, the reason why this is a huge development is that before the crackdown was against um, people who spoke out against the war, this play is about something totally different. It's about uh, ISIS brides in Russia, in fact, and was written years ago. But because someone complained about the content of the play as unpatriotic, as being against Russia, the actual content of their play is the reason why they're being accused of extremism and are now up in court. Um, Svetlana Petrichuk and Jana Berikova are um, now facing years and years in jail. Um, their, court, their case is up right now. And you've been able to see the play in Berlin and you think it's pretty remarkable. It's an extraordinary script based on, in fact, uh, court materials, the trials of Russian women who went to kind of as ISIS brides to Syria or attempted to make it to Syria many years ago. And those, some of those trials, you know, the, they use the documentation from that, the speeches to create a script about these decisions, about um, uh, a very deep and psychological play and a very interesting one. And now it's called Finnist the Brave Falcon. 
And now um, Yuri Shakhvatov, Svetlana's uh, husband and others are um, showing it uh, in different places, doing readings in support of these two women who are on trial for extremism as a result of this text. And so, yes, I went to see it just last week in Berlin. Um, It's called Finnist, The Brave Falcon, and it's a very beautiful text, very moving and interesting. Polina, thanks for coming on. Polina Ivanov, uh, Russian and Ukraine correspondent for the Financial Times. Her excellent piece on the Russian arts sector is uh, worth looking up and we'll have a link on our website. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 